You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. We're going to start this new year, 2020, with an emphasis on healthcare reform. It's a great year to be involved with healthcare issues. We know that 2020 is going to be a big year for health insurance and health regulation. It's going to be an election year, and that really kicks it off. We've got a presidential election coming up, and healthcare is going to be a big part of that. It's already been a part of the debate as the Democrats have put together a number of different plans uh, for growing the government involvement in healthcare. And we know that the Republican and uh, President Trump is going to go in the opposite direction of trying to create a free market. So we've talked about a lot of those issues, including uh, President Trump's executive orders. We talked about the Republican Study Committee and what they're proposing in terms of expansion of health um, savings accounts and many other issues. And we talked about actually developing an entire new system that helps people with pre-existing conditions, uh, provides guaranteed issue, and establishes it in a free market uh, format. So I think that if you've been listening to these podcasts, if you want to go back and listen to the earlier ones that are on americaswebradio.com, uh, go to Thursday at 11 a.m., and uh, that'll take you to the program area. Go to that program area at um, 11 a.m., and you'll see my bio, and at the bottom of the bio is all the previous uh, webcasts. So it's a great year, a great year to be in healthcare and to look at health reform ideas and issues. It's also going to be a big issue for the states as legislation uh, is being challenged still in the court. Obamacare legislation is being challenged. It may give states more flexibility. And in fact, states are applying under the Trump administration for greater flexibility under certain provisions of Obamacare. It's called a 1332 waiver where states are allowed uh, to do some of their own things in terms of health reform. And some of the ideas that we've thrown out here certainly should be adopted by a number of the states and are being adopted by some of the states. So as we move forward here, the real issue is how do we establish a free market? That's what we've been talking about for a long time. Now, most of the problems of the free market uh, for the uninsured, people not being covered, getting the right kind of coverage has really been the individual and small group marketplace. Large groups, self-insured groups, actually have some flexibilities that don't exist for those uh, small groups and individuals. Under Obamacare, there's an enormous amount of waiving of a lot of the requirements and restrictions under a self-insured plan. So what's happening in that marketplace that we can actually learn from? What's happening in that marketplace that we should be thinking about when developing legislation or recommendations on regulations? How does all that work? in the large group marketplace that has a lot of exemptions from Obamacare today. And how's that working? Well, let's take a look at what we've done over the last um, uh, few sessions. And let me just summarize so that everybody's on the same page as we move into 2020. Large employers are self-insured. They are the risk-bearing entity. It's not the insurance company. The insurance company is just being an administrator of claims. They pretty much have to do or need to do what the large employer wants done in terms of how the claims are paid and processed, what coverages are provided, because the insurance company is not really the one at risk. They're just processing claims. It's that insurance, that uh, employer that is at risk. So I developed this concept of um, healthcare consumerism. And so the, the, the next several weeks, we're going to talk about under the uh, title of Understanding Healthcare Consumerism. What does it really mean and what are the lessons to be learned that we should bring, be bringing into national health reform? Well, there are five generations we've talked about. And just so everybody's on the same page, let me go through those five generations. We touched on a little bit more detail um, uh, last, the end of last year. But let me talk about them today so everybody going forward here will be on the same page. There are five generations. These are not academic or think tank. Uh, models. These are what's actually happening in the marketplace. This way I view what's actually being implemented and what has been implemented. The five generations are follow along these lines. First generation is around discretionary expenses. It focuses on things like prescription drugs, 
uh, offices. It's diagnostic x-ray lab type expenses. But that's not the major bulk. But that's where the market started uh, 10 years ago in what I would call first-generation products. Um, some employers are still there. Uh, some employers just trying to get into healthcare consumerism are just starting in that first generation. Second generation gets into a real behavioral change. And this is where a more full definition of healthcare consumerism comes into play. Because what is healthcare consumerism? Well, I've defined it as changing your benefit plan into one that provides rewards and incentives to change behaviors for both health and health care so that your employees are taking a stake in their own health and getting rewards and incentives or shared savings. Uh, if they're doing something right, if they're following the doctor's orders, taking their medication, changing their lifestyle, doing healthy behaviors, then they should get some rewards and incentives. That didn't occur in generation one. Generation one just set up an account and then you sort of used up that account uh, when your health plan uh, wasn't paying for it because it was a deductible or co-insurance. But second generation now, we get into this uh, shared savings concept. So your plan is dynamic. Your plan changes during the year based upon uh, the rewards and incentives that are available and the activities that you're willing to take on uh, during the year. So it depends upon how the plan is structured. Very important that a human resource department, the benefits manager, designs their programs so that these second generation concepts uh, can um, be experienced by the members. So it reinforces the good behaviors with a financial uh, reward. Third generation is really a, uh, around what I call integrated health and performance. It has more to do with how your health affects your job and how your job affects your health. How does that interplay? Because if you've got a lot of stress, if there's um, lack of, of teamwork, if there's a poor morale, if there's all sorts of issues on a job, that can affect your health. And if you come into the workplace with poor health, if you don't take care of yourself, it affects your job. So it gets into the concept of what I call human capital, where human capital is what's my worth. It's not just my, my knowledge, my experience, my networks, my connections, uh, my, uh, my uh, education. It has to do much broader concept of my health and my performance so that I bring that to the job. And if I don't bring my health to the job, if I'm laid up in the hospital or I'm sick at home, uh, I'm not bringing the same kind of human capital value to that job as I should be. I'm not bringing the same kind of human capital value to my family or to my community or to my church. I've got to be able to do the right things, and health is a very important part of who I am and what I'm able to do. And once people begin to focus on that, that human capital that we own ourselves, each individual owns that human capital, uh, it is important that I now make the right decisions to stay healthy. On the fourth generation, it's around personal care accounts. Uh, personal care accounts and being able to take care of myself as an individual that it has to do with my own genomics, my own family history. It's very personal uh, to um, my own uh, issues and the technology that might be applied to me, predictive modeling. It's not about population management as might be applied to some of the earlier generations. It's about me specifically and the things that affect my health through my own uh, genomics, uh, proteomics, all sorts of new technologies and, and futuristic uh, engagements are, are possible there. It's around wireless support systems and uh, holistic care, uh, cultural disease management, arrive in time information, all sorts of things that affect me as an individual and whether I'm able to stay healthy and be healthy with the kinds of services and care that are provided. Fifth generation gets into more of a community. Um, is the community working together to help each other? It's not just about health anymore. It's about productive longevity. It gets into things like um, uh, charitable giving and paying forward the things that you've learned in life, being able to help others. It's got some great issues around helping each other, uh, terms like wise men, wise women, uh, sharing circles, uh, social networking, all sorts of issues that uh, can, where it shows we can help each other. And it moves away from the um, external rewards and incentives that are financial into more internal uh, rewards and incentives 
things like recognition, honor, respect, even love. How do we create that psychic involvement so that um, I'm not just expecting bigger and bigger rewards to do the same things as typical of the, those who have taken Psychology 101, uh, Maslow's hierarchy. At some point, we've got to move over and and, uh, and and do the things because we know they're the right things to do and we're getting a rewards and incentives in a more non-financial way. The um, uh, So that's the five generations. Now, if you think about the five generations going across the page, we're going to create a grid because down on the side of the page, we're going to create building blocks. And the building blocks, and I identify five of them, uh, personal care accounts, whether it's health, uh, savings accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, maybe some new ones that might even develop over time. There's been a lot of discussion about unifying the different accounts that are available today under a universal uh, personal care account. But that would be block number one. Block number two is health management. The health management uh, is uh, where uh, I'm doing the wellness, the, uh, the early intervention, the prevention, all those things can be different in each of the generations as to how um, I work to maintain my own uh, personal health. The um, third uh, building block is disease and condition management. Uh, working on the diseases, maybe they're chronic and persistent conditions. Um, I use the condition spe management specifically as a term because diabetes is not a disease. It's a condition that needs to be treated. And each of the generations, there are some different uh, issues that can be brought forward. If you're building a, a benefit plan, if you're a benefit manager trying to deal with these issues. There's new things that are available from uh, vendors out there that can deal with disease and condition management. The fourth is what I call decision support and health literacy. That is understanding healthcare more, becoming better consumers because we're more knowledgeable. We're more engaged in our own health. We're thinking about it. We're reading about it. We're working with a doctor on what they're trying to do to help us so we can become better patients. And the final one is um, incentives and rewards. Incentives and rewards is that part of that um, uh, shared savings. And again, in each of the generations, there's different potentials for how we would establish or structure incentives and rewards, all the way from um, uh, cash and trinkets and gift cards, all the way to uh, more uh, incentives that affect uh, your personal care accounts, you're adding to your HSAs, your HRAs, you're doing things that add to an existing account that may develop all the way to the fifth generation, which we mentioned a few minutes ago. There's no longer a cash or a financial reward, but it's the uh, intrinsic reward of uh, recognition and honor and respect and such that uh, are encouraged and reinforce good behaviors. So those are the things that um, we can do in terms of looking at an overall grid. If you just keep that in mind as we go through the next sessions, uh, a grid that goes across five generations on the page and on the side would go down to these five personal care accounts. So it's a five by five grid. And we're going to talk about each of those areas and how they interplay and how large employers are using these uh, concepts to, to improve the health of their, uh, their staff, to change their benefits and the plan for the future allows them to put together a long-term strategy on benefit designs. Well, that's the end of this first session, so let's take a break and we'll come back uh, with um, Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the tornadobodydryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Healthcare Insight, and I'm Ron Bachman. 
So we, we're going to talk now uh, specifically about how a large employer, a self-insured plan, can structure and design a three- to five-year strategy that's unique to their organization that allows them to do and create the types of plans that are available to self-insured uh, employers. I want to talk about some unifying basic principles and how to establish those if you're a benefit manager. You know, it's amazing to me how many people and organizations skip the fundamental steps of building a consensus for change. Here's one way to succeed in that process. First, gather up all the decision makers in your organization. That is your human resource vice president, the benefit manager, the wellness professionals, the CFO, communications VP, whoever it is in your organization. The bigger the organization, the more people that might be involved uh, in a smaller organization, maybe the same person uh, carries out a number of these functions by themselves. But get them in a room away from normal operations. Go off-site if necessary for a day or two and try to establish the kind of plan that's appropriate for your organization and meets the, the goals and the strategies that are set for your company. So if you're, a, if you're a consultant, this is a good process for you to think through. If you're a benefit manager, you can do this without a consultant, but sometimes it's helpful to have a third party in the room that can kind of guide you along. I'll leave that up to each company as to how they want to proceed. But I suggest you go through a few key questions, and I'm going to give you a few examples of those in a minute. Go through a few key questions to establish the organization's unique basic guiding principles. And for these questions, there's no right or wrong answers. The discussion that follows from the individual answers is the important part. There'll be some dialogue that's created, and it's critical that the decisions and discussion be open and honest and non-judgmental. Again, there's no right or wrong here. And what you want to be sure is that one person doesn't dominate. If there's a hierarchy of people in there that everybody's not looking uh, to just agree with the top management that happens to be there. The top management needs to come in recognizing that they need to listen and allow for the input of other members of the team. So everybody, regardless of their position on the job, ought to be considered equals in that room. And that's not always easy to, to design and structure, but that would be the ideal, that everybody comes in with that attitude that they're all equal, that all their opinions are as important as the other person. Nobody gets two votes. Everybody gets one. Principles are the guiding post for testing later decisions. Periodically, as you're doing your ultimate plan designs, it's important to check back to these original principles to see if the decisions are consistent with the original principles that we're going to help structure in this segment. Then either modify the principles if you've decided it's, you need to make a change in direction. Modify the principles and the priorities. What was thought to be important may have changed along the way. Or review and change the decisions to be consistent with the original principles. But without establishing some original principles, you're kind of like uh, making too many changes and sort of the whim of the day might push in one direction versus another one. Or somebody doesn't show up and you start to do something different. And um, you need to have a set of core principles as opposed to everything just being um, up to the winds of change. So to initiate the process, I'm going to give a list of a couple of uh, sample principles that can help to prioritize your actions. Uh, if anybody wants, they can send me a note. I can send you some uh, list of 31 or more uh, sample type questions, but I think you'll get the flavor as I go through these. But I would have all participants in the meeting mark each item with a score of one to five. And while there are no right or wrong answers, not everything should be marked one for important. Require that a maximum of five items be listed as a one and at least five items be listed as a five. That's if you have 30 or more. If you don't have 30, you can lower those numbers. But the point is, you can't say everything's important. 
and you can't say everything's not important. Um, so after allowing time for participants sort of to work through the list that you developed, I have a robust discussion around why certain items were picked by individuals and what they might mean to the organization. Just again, don't let anyone dominate the discussion. So here's a couple of items. Again, I would have a listings from one to five as um, your, your score. One's the most important and five is not important. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be done at all. It's just not as important as maybe some of the other items. So here's some basic principles for an organization to decide on. Do you have the right vision and vision statement for the organization? Is putting that together important or not important? Is it important to have a three to five year roadmap, a strategic plan? Is that important or not important? Score one to five. Do you want to create the plan as part of an employer of choice? Is that part of your overall corporate goal of being an employer of choice? Important or not important? Do you need to provide information on prescription drug costs and alternatives to your employees? Is that important or not important? Is it important to provide information on hospital costs? Is it important to provide information on the quality of physician care? Is it important to provide information on the quality of hospital care? Each of those could be separate principles for your organization. Again, score one to five. But another segment might be focused on discretionary costs. Is that really what you want to do? Work initially on prescription drugs, emergency room usage or overusage? Or do you want to focus on high cost claims and high cost claimants and what you need to do for those folks? Which is more important? discretionary costs or high cost claims? Are you trying to focus on wellness and prevention? One to five. Are you trying to focus on changing individual behaviors? Are you trying to focus on group behavior changes? So that's a whole area there that you can do a number of questions to establish the basic principles of your organization. Let's add another segment. What about the use of incentives and rewards? Is that important to your organization or not? Do you need to increase cost sharing to change behaviors or do rewards? Do you, increase, you need to increase employee contribution to their premiums to offset costs and not important or important, one to five. Do you want to focus on the overall plan cost reduction? Do you want to set the right metrics for monitoring progress? Important and not important. There's a whole other area that you might add questions on. You need to really reach out to the employees and build a broad employee agreement for the change. You need to do some surveys ahead of time to gain not only from the group that's meeting there about basic principles, but to gauge what the employees themselves would really like to see done. What do they need to make the changes that you'd like them to have? You want to minimize the change to current plans. So that you have the same plan, but you might do something different with rewards or incentives or some of the supplemental services of education uh, on your own plan. Do you need to make more choices and plan options available? Do you need to improve access to care, maintain existing networks of providers or expand the provider network or minimize the provider network? Again, all these are different areas that you could list out as potential basic principles. And then you're gonna call those down on the basis of your group's response. What about the cost of care? You need to provide dollars for post 65 retirement care. Is that an issue of your organization? Is that a, a main important issue? Or do you need to provide dollars for pre 65 retirement health care? Need to provide dollars for non-medical plan expenses, need to provide dollars for terminated employees' health care. Do you need to provide dollars for non-health care expenses? And you need to establish another basic principle around the alternatives for cutting benefits or increasing contributions. What's important there? Have you been cutting benefits in the past? So you need to change that because it's hurting employee morale you need to increase the contributions, or can you put in some kind of healthcare consumerism that helps in both those areas? 
So there's a lot of different things you can do in terms of establishing basic principles. It's the discussion around items like that that are the most important to a benefit manager trying to figure out what to do. And certainly it's important for a consultant to have a list of items and areas to put together their own list for their customers. Considerate listening to others will produce the best results. Higher level officers of the organization should speak last. It's amazing how different the selections will be from person to person. That's the most amazing, unusual result when I follow this process in my consulting days, was how you think everybody's on the same page when you walk into that room. But when you go through an exercise like this as to what's most important and what's not so important to an organization, and you require a spreading of those grades, and then you go around and talk about it, you'll find out people have very, very different ideas. And so ultimately, you have to coalesce around what basic principles you can agree on. So that discussion should develop a consensus around three to five of the most important principles. I would say no more than three to five. Keeping the discussion until the group has generated agreement on three to five items. Just keep it going, however long it takes, because this is the most important thing to get started. Keep the results for future reference in developing a vision statement. It'll be a good reminder if later implementation decisions get off track. A team recorder should take notes throughout the discussion. Key words and phrases will surface during those discussions. They'll make the next step, creating a vision statement, a lot easier. So let's start into talking about a vision statement, and we'll continue it in the next segment in all likelihood, but let's at least get started. Once there is a consensus on the basic principles, the group can move to creating a vision statement. A vision statement should be a simple and concise declaration of what the organization intends to accomplish. If the discussion of principles was robust and given appropriate time, the oft-repeated words that come out of the principles discussion will likely form the basis of a vision statement. Here are five vision statements as examples. And these are actual vision statements that are developed using this process. Vision statement one, the company said this was their vision, providing high performing, high educated employees and their families with the security of comprehensive health and healthcare coverage that meets their diverse needs and rewards their personal involvement and responsibility as wise users of services to optimize their individual health status and functionality. A little long, but a fairly concise vision statement. Here's a second one. It's to affect employee behavioral change towards healthier lifestyles and greater consumerism through the use of rewards and incentives. So that statement's a lot shorter and it focuses more on developing rewards and incentives than the first one did. Let me give a second one here. Uh, Make employees better consumers of healthcare services by providing them with the necessary health education, decision support tools, and useful information, including provider cost and quality data. So you can see this third one is more around um, the health literacy, education, and providing useful information. So whatever your basic principle is, that's going to give you the direction that you want to provide uh, those services and those coverages for your employee. It's really important that you are focusing in on a couple of items and not trying to do everything because try to do everything, then typically nothing gets done. Well, it's that time again. Let's take a quick break and go to commercial, and we'll be right back and continue this process of developing the ideas around how to implement a three- to five-year plan for healthcare consumerism in the large group market that hopefully sets the stage for what we can do nationally in a free market health insurance system. Hi, this is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour on America's Web Radio. If you'd like to hear an eclectic mix of great programs from relationships with Dr. Ann Schiebert to homegrown veggies and from classic cars to the Constitution, we've got programs for discerning listeners at www.americaswebradio.com. Okay, folks, let's have some fun on America's Web Radio. We love idioms, and we want yours. So send it in. Go into uh, our homepage. Look under the flag at the banner and uh, click on idioms, and send us your idiom today. 
Thanks. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. We talked about creating a list of basic principles, how to develop that as a common theme throughout your organization. And we talked about some basic strategies, creating a vision. It occurs to me as I'm walking through this with you that this is one of the reasons why maybe the Republicans have never put together a real consensus program for healthcare reform. The issues we're talking about for large employers and for group managers getting together and developing a consensus, starting with basic principles, is something that any organization, whether it's a national political party or an employer putting together a plan design or an insurance company trying to develop new products, too often we kind of go willy-nilly through the process thinking we know what needs to get done and just do it without really sitting down and having that kind of group consensus that's necessary. So continue to follow along with me and think about it, not just for an employer, a benefit group, but also the potential for how this would change how things are approached if we um, are doing this on a national level as well. We always talk about we need to have a conversation, but nothing ever happens like that. Employers uh, can do this very easily, but it's not always easy for politicians to say, well, I'm going to go on a national listening tour. I'm going to go on and I'm going to find out what the people really want. Because many times politicians think they know what's necessary, what people really want. So we're going to try to change the process here by laying out the ideas that we've already been through here with basic principles and uh, creating a vision statement. Now, what I'd like to do is once those things are done within an organization, identify acceptable strategies to carry out what you've just developed. Now, strategies are how you carry out the vision statement based on the basic principles. Very logical. Using the same group of decision makers, start with a list of about 15, or you can add your own. I'll go through a couple of those in a minute. Make a copy for each member if you have them on a sheet of paper, and then have each person mark each potential strategy, again, using the one to five, a high priority or low priority. Make sure the maximums of two to three are number ones and a minimum of two to three are number fives. In other words, again, you want to get a spread. Everything can't be number one, a high priority. Everything can't be just a low priority. So pick out on a relative basis what applies to your organization. The discussion, again, needs to be open, non-confrontational dialogue of the individual choices. There's no right or wrong here. You're now trying to sort of lay out the strategies that are acceptable to carry out the things that you've already agreed on as a group. So develop a consensus set of strategies to carry out the vision. And then periodically check back to see if the strategies are consistent with your selected basic principles. And let me give you some examples. Here's some acceptable strategies that might be agreed upon. Might not be, but let me give you a, an idea of some uh, strategies. And if you're a company, develop some of your own. If you're a benefit consultant using this process, develop your own. If you're in the political arena, again, develop the strategies that you think are going to be helpful in carrying out the uh, program that you're trying to design or the legislation you're trying to put together. Let's say um, one of the main issues is transparency. You want to create more transparency. So a strategy would be uh, identified this way. Support an employee's right to know. Minimize distortions of third-party reimbursement system and create transparency and costs. Provide education and training on health care costs and use decision support programs. So you can put down, is that a high priority or is it a low priority for what you're trying to put together? Your basic principles and your vision statement ought to tell you whether that, in fact, is a high priority or low priority. Now we'll start to get the ideas of bringing out some remaining disagreements, conflicts, areas need to be cleaned up as you go through these strategies. Let's talk about another strategy. Uh, you want to create more personal involvement of your employees. 
You want to establish greater financial involvement through high deductible health plans, HRAs or HSAs. You want to reward good behavior, offer valued options, uh, provide long-term incentives, and provide immediate feedback. So getting more people more involved in their personal um, decision-making and behavioral change. Is that a high priority or a low priority based upon what you've developed so far? A third strategy might be to be bold and creative. You know, you want to shift the supply side controls uh, to demand side controls. Uh, be an early adopter, a fast follower, or consider out-of-the-box ideas. How creative and inventive is your organization? The supply side controls, I'm referring there to that the insurance company or your plan design says, here's what you can have as an employee. Um, here's what we're going to offer you. And we're going to control what it is you can get by saying, here's, here's what's available to you. On the demand side control, it's more about uh, rewards and incentives and getting the employee to demand certain services because, again, if they have a financial stake in the game and along with this, uh, they're going to demand the things that they need. And most people don't want a lot of health care if they can avoid it, but they want to be rewarded and incentivized for being cost effective in those choices as well. So being bold and creative, is that a high priority or a low priority? I just want to, you're not a fast follower, so this would not be a high priority. If you are a fast uh, early adopter or a fast follower, this would be a high priority. All right, another strategy. Do you want to focus on that uh, 15 to 25% of the high cost population? You want to provide financial protection to families in need due to unexpected medical costs and or chronic conditions. So it's a focus on uh, those who sometimes in mathematical terms are called the Pareto uh, population at 15% uh, of the cost, uh, the 15% of the population is creating 80% of the cost, that high cost population. Important or not important? Is that what your focus is of your basic principles and your vision statement? You want to focus on saving lives and improving health? That is, focus on improving the health of the entire population, regardless of plan design selected. Implement preventive and wellness for long-term savings and disease management for immediate impact. So here you're focusing on a population management more than individual lives. And so that would be important or not important in your structure. You want to focus on preventive care. A strategy for that is to create incentive programs that change behaviors toward acceptance and compliance with wellness, well-being, and early intervention. Includes prenatal, non-smoking, diet, exercise, and safety. So here, if your strategy is to focus on preventive care, then is that important or not important to your organization? Uh, you want to minimize cost shifting. Use consumerism as an alternative to increase cost shifting or higher contributions. So is that a big issue in your organization that every time you get around to renewal, you wind up having higher deductibles and more cost sharing to the employee and you want to kind of minimize that impact because their salary increases, for example, just eaten up with more healthcare costs or more healthcare uh, cost shifting. So there's a number of packages that can be put together in terms of the um, uh, strategies that could be acceptable uh, to your organization. Some people say, we don't want to do that. Other people say, yes, that is high priority. Another one might be focusing on information sharing. That is providing employees with decision support tools and information sources without accounts or incentives or rewards or penalties. So is it just about educating the employees, both at the selection of plan and the uh, annual enrollment, or is it about information sharing when they um, uh, generate uh, an illness or have an accident or their family members are in need of information about where to go for the right kind of care. Where's the best services, the best hospitals, centers of excellence. Is that is the focus more on information sharing than it is around plan design? Some of the important areas that you'd want to discuss in terms of your strategies to carry out your basic principles uh, is uh, you want to use package programs. They use fully integrated plan designs, information, decision management, and decision support systems from a single vendor. Is it important that you stay with one vendor? Maybe you're using one vendor to do all those services. Or do you want to have specialized services? You want to have a coordination, but of different vendors. 
that have to work together ultimately. Uh, many times it's not wise just to use one large insurance carrier to do all your processing and provide all that information. Many times it is. Other times you may want to have uh, individual uh, expertise in some of these areas, whether it's information uh, flow, education of your employees, or even disease management programs that you want to use some outside services. So the alternative uh, to using the single uh, vendor is uh, use uh, best of class programs. Um, if that's really important to your organization, be best of class as opposed to one large integrated system. Again, that's a decision uh, you need to make. In terms of other strategies, what about use of telemedicine and telehealth? Are your employees ready for that? Are you in a rural area or in a metropolitan area? Is it going to be important to use telemedicine and telehealth and some of the new technologies that people can um, take care of themselves and monitor themselves with um, uh, wearables um, through um, apps on their iPhones? There's all sorts of potentials there. Again, what are the strategies that you want to use to carry out? Now, having spent a considerable amount of time on the foundational steps to develop a clear understanding and direction for your organization, you're really ready for the next step, and that is change. So let me talk about change for a minute because, you know, we all sort of understand change. But, you know, there's an old saying about change. And uh, Winston Churchill once said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Well, the United States has tried many different ways to change healthcare. The goal is to lower costs, expand access, and improve quality. Pretty simple, three areas. We've tried payment reforms, insurance reforms, cost shifting, self-insured funding, HMOs, PPOs, and a myriad of other initiatives. We seem to keep changing, or at least trying to change, without finding the right solution. Well, here I think healthcare consumerism is one of the major issues there. And I'm gonna give you a formula for change. I'll give you an overview and then we're gonna do a little bit of a deep dive in the next um, segment. But a lot of people talk about and propose change, but how does change actually happen? Well, there's a process that you can follow. There's a formula actually for change. As an actuary, I am sort of an insurance mathematician. And I like formulas. So I found a perfect formula from Paul Ingram, a PhD. He's a professor of business at Columbia. And the formula is fairly simple. It's a three-step process. In order to get change, you have to have three things actually happen. You have to have a desire for change. You have to have a vision for change. And you have a process to get to that change. So think of it as a mathematical formula. Desire times vision times process equals change. So I want to talk about each of those areas as we move into the next segment. Because without change, you're not going to get any place. If you're just going to do the same old, same old things, you're going to be minimal and doing things at the edges or just following what last year's uh, you know, HR department wanted to do, um, increase your contribution from the employer side, increase the contribution because costs have gone up on the on the uh, employee side, the family side. Or you want to just add more deductibles. You want to add a new wrinkle here, a wrinkle there, but nothing of any significance. You know, there's an old saying that real change requires real change. So again, depending upon what your group has discussed so far, you can probably also figure out how much change your organization can handle. Change is difficult. Change is difficult on the employees who may have a lot of other things going on in their life. Your organization may be going through a lot of change. It may be a merger, maybe an expansion. There may be all sorts of changing in management that's going on, maybe other issues in your organization. So the question is, are you really ready for change? And we're going to talk about how, in fact, we can put together that formula for change and what it would mean. So if your organization is ready for change, stay tuned, listen to the next segment, because we're going to talk about how you actually get change in an organization.
morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Listening to America's Web Radio on the America's Broadcast Network.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio. We're talking about change. How do you get change at the corporate level? How do you get change at the HR benefit level? Even how do you get change at the national level? I want to walk through a formula for change that actually can apply to almost any aspect of your life. Anytime you're trying to make change, especially during this period now of 2020 and the beginning of the year, everybody's making promises to themselves about how to make change in their lives, whether it's a better diet or exercise or a family relationship. So measure yourself up against this kind of a process. Let's start off with the idea that there's three aspects, the desire for change, a vision for change, a process for change. And if all three of those are winding up in agreement that you have a check mark by each of those, those things that you want to do, that you found the answers and solutions to the desire, established a vision, found the process, put all that together, you'll get change. Now, the desire, you have to ask yourself a key question. Within your organization, Is there a desire for something better? Can you explain it? Can you define it? Can you describe it? But since many individuals and organizations respond more to pain than a promise or desire for something better, the question can be stated in negative terms. Is the pain or failure of what you're currently doing great enough to require a change? You know, the desire for change has its own multiple steps before you can determine whether or not your organization really has a desire for change. Who's moving the process? Is it the CEO? Is it the CFO because there's some cost issues on the healthcare side that uh, they want to make a change? Is it the HR person who wants to be more of a critical part of the entire management and try to save the organization both money and improve the health of its employee population? What is the desire for change? In many cases, there is a stepladder to determine whether or not you've reached that uh, break point where the desire is great enough or the pain is great enough. Usually it starts off with just checking the pros and cons and desire for change will need some research. So there's a lot of different ways to, to create that desire for change. But the human resource department is critical in stating and reinforcing the organizational's desire for change. However, many times the desire for change, as I said, comes from the CFO, from financial reasons, or from the CEO, because he thinks it will create a competitive advantage. But reaching that critical mass on the desire for change is its own process. First, one must become aware of the possibilities for change. It's critical to identify the organizational pros and cons of any change. The next step is to identify the winners and losers resulting from any change. If the initial analysis shows the potential winners are greater or more influential than the potential losers, the stage is set. 
for more detailed research. After intensive and usually time-consuming research of products, approaches, and available services, a decision is made as to whether all signals indicate a go or no-go decision. The key decisions may involve financial concerns, morale concerns, competitive needs, union concerns, and other issues unique to the organization. So that's why this is a good generic formula, because each organization may wind up with different answers as it does its research. <clears throat> the threshold of moving to the next step is either achieved or is not. Without reaching a threshold necessary to support a desire for change, no change is likely to happen. So in that formula, if the desire for change is zero, then the probability of change is also zero. The best decision then, at that point in time, is likely to just put it on the back burner and wait until there is a real desire for change. Otherwise, you're just going to be wasting your time wasting your energy. It's good information and background, but if there's no desire for change, then trying to go any further is really sort of a waste of time. Well, let's talk about the vision part of that change formula. A common vision of the future is usually the missing link when attempting sustainable changes. Creating a common vision may start with the HR department, the executive suite, or even among employees. Without a common vision, an organization is likely to purchase and implement disconnected and potentially contradictory programs and services. The processes and concepts outlined in the material we've been describing and subsequent materials we'll go over will provide the basis for an organization to develop a successful, sustainable healthcare consumerism concept based on a common vision. So you really need to step back and take some time and say, for that change that I now have a desire to make, are we all in agreement? Is the vision there that will sustain us going forward? Because if there's no vision, again, that formula, <clears throat> desire times vision times process. If the answer is the vision equals zero, then change is also going to be zero. And what you might wind up with is a lot of expensive false starts because you've really not put together a program that recognizes the change that really is going to be needed. And if somebody else steps in and takes control of the process without a common vision, you'll see changes and alternatives and just a sense of confusion at that point. So now let's talk about the process for change. Once there's a desire to change and a common vision is established, the search for the processes of implementation can then begin. It's important to find the right vendors or solution providers that can match your vision? Do you go with a single integrated solution or seek out best-of-class providers? The stage of implementing change usually involves a consultant or broker assisting with a request for a proposal or an RFP process. In that formula that we're walking through here, if the process of change is zero, then again, the change is going to be zero. If no one can realistically and within budget deliver on the vision, it will halt the process of change and create frustration because you cannot find somebody who can do what you want to do. So take some time and be sure that you find the right vendor, the right solution, the right way to implement the process that you're selecting. So as you can see, if you have a desire, as we've described, you've defined it in your organization that either the idea of change is going to be so great, so important to your organization, or the pain of what you're doing now is so great that you've got to change. You've reached that threshold for desire. You've then established a common vision with your employees, with your top management, with your any other stakeholder. 
the owners of the organization. You've established a common vision of what you want to do. And then you establish a process. Somebody who can help you do that. Either do it internally or externally. But whatever that answer is, you found a process. If you can do all three of those things, you will get change. So only when all three aspects of change are reached and in agreement with your principles, vision, and strategies will effective, sustainable change occur. You can do this, but you really have to think through this very simple formula for change. If your organization has reached the threshold for change and all the areas are in alignment, only then can you proceed to an important step, what I'll call corporate readiness. Are you really ready as an organization to make that change? So that one final step, verifying that, okay, I can make the change happen. Now, is our corporation really ready for this change? And will we get the most effective use out of making the change? There's an old saying, goes back as far as a saying from Socrates. It says the secret to change is to focus all your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. So if you haven't established this structure for sustainable change, you may have people within the organization resistant to change and fighting for the old. You've got to get everybody on the same page fighting for the new. As Newt Gingrich often says, real change requires real change. But, you know, real change really doesn't come easy to everybody. There are many people who have a great difficulty in making change. But once you put that together, you're now going to be ready to determine whether or not your corporation is ready for that change. That's an important step. And now it's the final step in trying to determine whether or not you're going to be able to improve through your healthcare design and benefits, the human capital of your organization. You ask any CEO, what's the most important part of their organization? And every one of them, almost to the person, will say it's my human capital. So you've got to put together an HR program, a benefit design that improves human capital, that makes your population healthy. You don't do it just to save money. You should save money, but if that's your goal, you'll probably make cuts and changes in areas that are not going to be very effective. You're going to make change that might affect your bottom line in the short term, but it's not going to help in the long term. What you really have to do is improve your human capital ongoing. And there may be things other than healthcare that you need to do first. Just doing healthcare by itself may not get you where you want to go. You don't want people to get involved and change their behaviors and take responsibility for their health care as the very first time you ask them to act like adults, to get involved in decision making. If your organization has been structured with a lot of bureaucratic rules and regulations and you don't treat your employees with the respect that they deserve to make decisions about their job, to get bonuses doing a good job, to be able to have input to top management. There are a lot of decisions through the rest of your organization that might be important, maybe more important, to create that culture of supporting human capital, create a culture of asking people to take more personal responsibility. So that's what we're going to get into next week. We're going to talk about whether or not after you've all done all these things about you're ready for change, you've identified it, you've got a process for change. At the end of the day, is your corporation ready for those changes? And is it really improving the human capital? So come back and join us next week on America's Web Radio. The program is on 11 o'clock on Thursdays, and it's called Healthcare Insight. This is Ron Bachman signing off for this week. We'll see you next week, and thank you for listening to Healthcare Insight. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.